Thank you all uh, for coming today. My name is John Maniscalco. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And uh, this Hill briefing today is about a topic that uh, has appeared frequently in the news lately. It's about um, corporate inversions, which are uh, financial reorganizations that place U.S. firms under a foreign parent corporation. Uh, and if you've been following the news in the last uh, 24 hours or so, you've seen that Burger King is the latest example in a series of corporations that have decided to do this. Uh, they'll be reorganizing in Canada. And they're not doing that because, uh, being Burger King, that they like the fact that Canada still has the picture of the queen on their currency. They're doing it because our republic, which got its independence through a uh, tax revolt, has the highest corporate taxes in the world. And now there are two obvious solutions to this. One is to lower the corporate tax rate, which would benefit workers, consumers, and shareholders. Or if you're an elected official and you want more public money to play with, uh, you could just call these people who uh, engage in corporate inversions unpatriotic. Uh, and so we have three scholars here today, two of which are here right now, but one is coming, uh, which will discuss the uh, policy uh, alternatives to uh, corporate inversions, or I'm sorry, uh, policy responses. Um, and who, who knows, maybe after all is said and done today, uh, they may be all tried for uh, economic treason. Uh, they are um, Dan Mitchell with Cato, David Burton with the Heritage Foundation, and Ike Brennan with the George W. Bush Institute, and I'll introduce them all now. Uh, Dan Mitchell is an expert on tax reform and supply-side tax policy. Prior to joining Cato, Dan Mitchell was a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and an economist for uh, Senator Bob Packwood at the uh, Senate Finance Committee. He also served on the 1988 Bush Quail Transition Team and was Director of Tax and Budget Policy for Citizens for a Sound Economy. He holds a bachelor's and master's degree in economics from the University of Georgia and a PhD in economics from George Mason University. David Burton, who's uh, sitting to my left, focuses on tax matters, security law, entitlements and regulatory and administrative law issues at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, he's a general he was a general counselor at the National Small Business Association for two years prior to joining Heritage. Uh, and he was previously chief financial officer and general counsel of the Startup Alliance for Retirement Prosperity, which is a conservative alternative to the AARP. He received his Juris Doctor degree from the University of Maryland School of Law, and he also holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics from the University of Chicago. Ike Brannon uh, is a uh, growth fellow at the George W. Bush Institute. He's currently president of the consulting firm Capital Policy and Analytics and the head of the Savings and Retirement Foundation. And prior to that, he was a director of economic policy as well as congressional relations uh, for the American Action Forum. He served as economist for the uh, John McCain campaign in 2008, and he has a PhD in economics from Indiana University, a BA in math, Spanish, and economics from Augustana College. And with that, I'll turn it over to the policy guys. Hello. Um, my focus, or the focus of my remarks, is going to be to sort of explain to you how the international tax system works, and then Dan and Ike are going to tell you how to fix it. Although. I won't be able to entirely avoid the temptation of discussing how to fix it. The uh, United States is the only major industrialized country that taxes its corporations on worldwide income, income earned both within and without the United States. Uh, there are a few smaller uh, countries that do so, Chile, Israel, and South Korea, I believe, are the, the three in the OECD. But among major industrialized countries and virtually any European country, the Canadians, the Australians, they all have some form of a territorial system where they simply tax the income of their businesses earned within 
their country. <clears throat> the United States provides a foreign tax credit, uh, which is meant to uh, avoid double taxation of income earned abroad. In sort of broadest principle, you could think of it as a, a reduction in the U.S. tax. So you basically calculate the, the tax that would have been paid uh, under the U.S. tax on the foreign source income and deduct the foreign taxes. If the foreign taxes exceed the U.S. taxes, which is extremely rare these days, then uh, there's no U.S. tax due. But if, uh, if, the, uh, if there is additional U.S. tax due, then you have to write a check to the Treasury. Now, this requires you to figure out what's foreign source income and what's U.S. source income. So there's a complex system of rules uh, governing income sourcing and expense allocation for purposes of determining whether income is foreign source or U.S. source. And <clears throat> that employs a great many lawyers and accountants uh, throughout the country working for multinational businesses, both U.S. businesses and also foreign businesses doing business in the United States. We do tax foreign businesses doing business in the United States, and they can do that one of two ways. They can have a U.S. subsidiary, or they can do business directly, in which case they're taxed on income within the United States, even though they're a foreign corporation that is effectively connected with a U.S. trader business. So that's sort of a term of art, and you have to figure out what that means. Uh, the foreign tax credit, though, isn't nearly so simple as, as I made it sound. It's subject to separate limitations. Uh, it's not, it, so you have to calculate various types of income, high tax country income, uh, non-CFC subsidiaries, and uh, financial services income, and so on down the line. So it's really divided up sometimes into literally hundreds of separate baskets, and the foreign tax credit is applied separately. But that's not the end of the complexity associated with our international tax system, because we have what's called various anti-deferral regimes. These would include the controlled foreign corporation rules and then subpart F income under those, the so-called passive foreign investment company or PFIC rules, the foreign personal holding company rules. Presumably your eyes are starting to glaze over. But unfortunately, the anti-deferral rules matter a great deal to the discussion we're going to have today because you may have heard about $2 trillion roughly or so dollars being trapped offshore. Well, what that means is that the income while earned by a controlled foreign corporation, a controlled foreign corporation is a foreign corporation uh, more than 50% owned by 10% or more shareholders. Uh, th this, but then if it's a CFC, only the subpart F income is taxed currently. Non-subpart F income is deferred. So if you basically have a corporation manufacturing goods in country A for country A, then that's not going to be subpart F income and you can achieve deferral. And the money is in effect trapped overseas because if you bring it back, you have to pay the highest corporate income tax in the world. So uh, that gives you a sense of the extraordinarily com complexity of it. The fact that the United States has the highest tax rate in the world, the fact the United States is the only major industrialized country that taxes its corporations on income earned throughout the world, and the fact that if you do it right, you can defer those taxes, but the money in effect gets trapped offshore. Now this, we're talking about inversions, but this isn't the first time we've been down this road. We went down the road in the 90s, and that gave us Internal Revenue Code 367A, 
When we went down the road early in the Bush administration in 04, that gave us anti-inversion legislation that's now in Internal Revenue Code 7874. And in fact, what the administration is in effect proposing is juicing 7874 so that it's uh, more strict. The bottom line is that it's never really going to work unless we adopt the kinds of things that Dan and Ike are going to be talking about. Because even if you basically make it impossible for a U.S. corporation to change its domicile, there always will be an out, and that is to, in effect, sell out to a foreign corporation rather than do an inversion where the management is really in the United States. So do we want to create a tax system, which is what we have, which is basically the equivalent of planting a big sign in the front lawn of the United States saying, please don't do business here. Please don't headquarter your company here. Uh, do we want a tax system that basically treats foreign corporations better than U.S. domiciled corporations, that makes it economically irrational to headquarter your, your, corp your multinational corporation in the United States? I think the answer to that should be no. <clears throat> I suppose the, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Dan and Ike, is a little bit on the economics of it. Uh, investors don't seek pre-tax returns. They seek after-tax returns. Nobody really cares what the pre-tax return is. They're looking for how much money they can ultimately put in their pocket. You can see this in a really simple way with respect to municipal bonds and corporate bonds. Uh, corporate bonds uh, have a higher pre-tax return, but generally uh, on a credit rating adjusted basis, lower than municipals, which is why money flows into municipals, even though they have a lower coupon. Another way of looking at it is in effect that capital is like water. Water flows downhill. Capital flows to the highest after-tax rate of return. And if we make the uh, tax cost of headquartering a business in the United States extraordinarily high, the markets will respond and the headquarters of the major multinationals around the world will leave the United States. And in point of fact, that's precisely what's happening. I'll leave it to Dan and Ike to broach precisely how to fix that. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thanks to uh, Dan and uh, Cato for uh, inviting me to talk. Um, I thought what I would do is uh, just dial it back just a little bit and, and ask a simple question. Why do we think U.S. companies operate abroad? And I think that's the essential question we need to understand to uh, understand the, the current battle over inversions and also how we tax U.S. corporations' overseas income. And I think there's two different schools of thought, and the, the truth is really somewhere in between. Uh, I think the White House's position is that most companies that have overseas operations do so uh, primarily to exploit cheaper labor overseas. Uh, on the other side, I would say most Republicans in Congress think that, that U.S. corporations who have overseas operations do so in order to service local markets. Like I said, the reality is somewhere in between, but your perspective uh, on this issue uh, colors how you think we should tax overseas corporations. So um, the administration thinks that every single dollar earned by a U.S. company, whether they earn it here in the U.S. or they earn it elsewhere, should be taxed at this one same rate. 
in order to take away any single tax advantage that a company, U.S. company, might have to take things overseas. Um, people who, who believe the opposite would argue that we want to keep U.S. corporations uh, as competitive as possible abroad because operating overseas also creates U.S. jobs. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So um, in the late 1990s, PepsiCo uh, became very, very active in Eastern Europe. What they did is they bought a lot of uh, soda, soda um, from the Midwest, soda pop plants. They bought a lot of potato chip factories, and they started doing a lot of production overseas. Um, there's no conceivable way that Pepsi could service those overseas markets by producing Pepsi and Lay's potato chips in the U.S. and shipping them 3,000 miles overseas and then selling them over there. That's the, the volume is way too much. The volume is too big for that to ever make any sense. But I would argue that Pepsi creates all kinds of jobs in the U.S. by having these jobs abroad. And the alternative to Pepsi having these operations abroad uh, is some other company with no U.S. roots and no reason to hire U.S. workers to do uh, back office management, IT, marketing, and stuff like that for uh, Pepsi's operations overseas. I think whenever we think about companies that are operating overseas, the first thing that pops in our plants are uh, U.S. manufacturing companies that, that take jobs and do them in, in Asia and South America where the labor is much cheaper. And there's certainly some of that. But then if you look at a company like Caterpillar Tractor Company, uh, which is from my hometown of Peoria, Illinois, um, Caterpillar does a whole range of production activities in Peoria, Illinois. And they also do a lot of production over, overseas as well. And the question is, why do they do, which, what kind of production do they do here? What kind of production do they do overseas? And the answer is kind of simple. Caterpillar does the very low margin, low cost production, uh, low tractors. They do those overseas. They do those closest to the markets where um, that uh, cost of shipment would be relatively large proportion of the total cost and where they can't be that competitive to produce something in Peoria, put it on a boat, ship it down the river, put it on another boat, ship it all the way across the ocean to, uh, to Asia or Europe or Africa or wherever. But what Caterpillar does produce in Peoria, Illinois are the very costly high margin uh, tractors uh, that uh, that get shipped all over the world. And the advantage to being having operations in uh, production operations in China and Brazil and across the country is that across the globe is that it makes Caterpillar's uh, gigantic markets and makes them more competitive there. And so one of the things I think we need to be cautious of is that if we were to say, all right, screw this, let's uh, simply go back to a worldwide tax jurisdiction get rid of all deferral, and simply make U.S. corporations pay the same rate on every dollar they earn no matter what. Caterpillar is going to do, and, and PepsiCo is going to do less things overseas. They're going to sell some of those operations. And those are going to come back, and they're going to hurt jobs, and they're going to hurt production here in the U.S. as well. Um, in 2007, I was part of a team of economists who did a report for the U.S. Treasury on corporate tax reform. And one of my tasks was to go and talk to a bunch of CEOs and uh, senior tax officers for manufacturing companies and ask them about why they locate certain operations overseas. And, and more than one said to me, we are located, our, our headquarters are in the United States solely because of an historic accident. Under no circumstance, if we were starting up a gigantic company now, would we locate a headquarters here because of the tax advantage. Uh, another Fortune 500 company uh, tax chief tax officer told me that they estimate that when they are operating 
in the EU, their average tax disadvantage is about five percentage points on their profits. That's significant. That makes it more difficult for US companies to compete. Um, I think one other thing we need to ask ourselves when we're looking at um, our corporate tax rate, which is, as David pointed out, um, has a lot of flaws in it, is, is who actually pays the corporate income tax? I think a facile way to look at it is to simply say, well, it's paid by big, bad, evil corporations. But all of us know a lot better than that. It has to be paid by one of three different groups. It has to be paid by either the shareholders in the form of a lower return of capital, or the workers who get a lower wage rate because there's less capital that they use and they're less productive, or it's paid by the consumers because they have to pay higher prices because of the tax. And I think in the last decade, the, the preponderance of evidence, has, both on the left and the right, has suggested that it's primarily borne by the workers in the form of lower wages. Right? The Congressional Budget Office put out a study in 2006 suggested that it's between uh, two-thirds and three-fourths is borne by workers. Um, the liberal tax policy center, Urban's Brookings, suggests that it's somewhere like that as well. So I think we really need to be aware of these things uh, when we're condemning companies for, for doing these tax maneuvers. Uh, and then, you know, one other thing a company uh, pointed out to me, um, when we talk about why companies do locate operations where they do. A lot of the uh, drunk companies uh, op put their operations not in, in low-cost places, but a lot of them put things in Switzerland. Why is that? Well, it's certainly not because there's really cheap labor in Switzerland. It's because, uh, primarily because of tax reasons. So what's the answer? You know, Dan, I think Dan was going to wrap it up by uh, giving a couple of thoughts on what uh, he thinks we ought to do, but I'm, I'm going to jump the gun a bit. Uh, you know, there's a, a proposal out there that, that Greg Mankey wrote about in the Sunday New York Times and uh, has been getting a lot of traction uh, by Michael Grates, who's a, a, a tax uh, professor, a tax law professor uh, now in, uh, in New York. And his argument is we simply need to go to something akin to a, uh, a value-added tax or sales tax and generate the bulk of our revenue that way and use that revenue to uh, dramatically lower not just the corporate tax rate, which he would drop to something like 13 or 14 percent, but also uh, personal, the top personal rates as well. Um, at least that's a more honest tax code uh, because it would be taxing people, uh, we, it would be more visible. Um, we all know that taxing capital investment isn't a good thing. We'd rather not tax effort, but taxing consumption is a much more efficient way to do it. And uh, we would probably get a lot more growth. And in one fell swoop, we would turn a very uncompetitive tax code into something that would be the envy of the rest of the world. So it's just a uh, thought to think about before Dan gives you his uh, answer to the universe. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Ike. Uh, when you're talking about exports, it reminded me, at least back when we had the inversion fights in the uh, 2000s, that uh, at that point in time, and I assume it must be similar, one-fourth of U.S. exports are actually sales from American companies to their foreign subsidiaries. So it does make a big difference to jobs and exports in America uh, to have American companies competing for market share abroad. Uh, I want to go ahead and, uh, and put all this now in context and wrap it up. Uh, inversions, as I indicated, were big last decade. And then Congress passed some legislation that I think fairly can only be called financial protectionism or fiscal protectionism. That sort of slowed it down. But uh, as David indicated, you can't completely stop inversions so long as you have free movement of, uh, of capital, so long as you, have, uh, you don't put huge barriers in terms of companies operating around the world. And so now inversions have become a big issue again because of cross-border mergers. 
And when you have these cross-border mergers, in almost every single case, it makes sense for the reasons that have already been discussed uh, for these inversions to take place with the foreign company becoming the official parent and the U.S. company becoming the subsidiary, even though in many cases, indeed most cases, the headquarters still stays in the United States. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at a couple of slides that will put all this in context. This shows the wave of inversions last decade and now the wave of inversions today. Um, here's a different look at it. Uh, the numbers aren't the same. This is from the Democratic uh, staff of the House Ways and Means Committee showing how inversions have been taking off. So wh whichever set of numbers you believe, it's clear that a lot of them are happening. And the question is why? Well, taxes are a dominant Factor. It doesn't mean the only factor. It could very well be uh, that Tim Hortons and Burger King would have economic reasons to merge regardless of tax codes, but there's no doubt about it that the investors at Burger King, the shareholders, are looking at this and saying, we'll have a more profitable company if we can escape the worldwide tax system of the United States. And indeed, as, uh, as David mentioned, uh, we are, have the highest corporate tax rate in the industrialized world. Some people say the entire world, depending on how you count uh, a few uh, uh, countries. Uh, but the real problem is not just that we have the high tax rate, we have the system of worldwide taxation, which is a second layer of tax imposed on American companies for the income they earn abroad. Because never forget that if you're an American company and you're earning money in some place like Switzerland, you're already paying Swiss corporate income tax. So the question is, does it make sense to then force the company to declare that income a second time to the IRS and pay tax on it? Now, of course, we do have deferral, which at least allows them to postpone that, but at the cost of locking up their capital and keeping it overseas. Uh, here's a, a map showing some major countries and their corporate tax rates. Who would have thought the United States would have a higher corporate tax rate even than France. And you look at some of our major competitors, and their corporate tax rates are, are about half our level. As a matter of fact, if you look at this chart that our friends from the Tax Foundation put together, you can see that about you know, 30 years ago, corporate tax rates were very high. But then we entered a very uh, virtuous cycle of tax competition. The US actually took the lead by lowering our corporate tax rate during the Reagan years. Other countries caught up, and then they passed us. So our corporate tax rate has stayed relatively high, but look what's happened to the average of corporate tax rates for other industrialized countries. Uh, they're not, it's actually, it says 25.1. They're actually down with the latest data uh, to closer to 24%. So other countries are reacting to globalization. They're making sensible changes to make their business environments more friendly. The United States is sitting still. Now, maybe we could have sat still in 1986 when we took a lead, but then other people continued to do the right thing uh, and now we're in trouble. Here's a map showing high corporate tax rate. You don't want to be dark colored in this map. The United States is dark colored, as you can see. But the real key, is, as I said before, it's not just the high rate, it's the worldwide taxation. Countries around the world have not only been lowering their corporate tax rates, they've been moving in the direction of territorial taxation. Now, to be perfectly honest, there are probably very few uh, pure worldwide tax systems even the U.S. isn't pure worldwide since we have deferral. And among the countries that are territorial, oftentimes they do have a few exemptions. So it's more like a continuum. But on that continuum, with really bad policy being pure worldwide taxation, the U.S. is farthest in that wrong direction. Uh, here's a, a chart you won't be able to remotely uh, understand, but it was a study looking at corporate tax systems around the world and ranking them on how business friendly they were, how investor 
friendly they were. Uh, 100 countries, the United States came in 94th. Now, this didn't just look at the tax rate. It didn't just look at worldwide taxation. It also looked at things like depreciation policy. Uh, but again, you, know, you don't need to even be able to read any of the numbers. Just understand that being 94th out of 100 is not a good place to be on that kind of chart. And if you look just at the countries that have some form of worldwide taxation, you see that the United States stands out for having an extraordinarily high corporate tax rate. And you'll also notice that there really aren't any major countries, uh, as David said, we're the only major country that has worldwide taxation. So now let's sort of ask ourselves the fundamental question, the whole purpose of this panel today. What are the reasons to block inversions? Well, the good reasons, I'm going to postulate zero. What are the bad reasons? Well, desire for more revenue, financial protectionism, political demagoguery, and, and, and the false canard that it keeps jobs in America. And let's sort of look at this. Here's a chart put together by some people who don't like inversions, and it makes it seem like, oh my God, we have this giant problem. Look at this, $19.5 billion that could be lost. Well, okay, wait, what's a 10-year number? What are corporate tax revenues over 10 years? Well, here's a chart showing projections from the Congressional Budget Office of corporate tax revenue over the next 10 years. And then the, the line, that, the, the little bar that you can't even really see is the amount of money that is, quote, lost to inversions. Uh, and I actually think if you, if you didn't do static revenue scoring, you did dynamic revenue scoring, uh, you would actually see, you wouldn't even see that tiny, tiny sliver of revenue compared to the $4.5 trillion, uh, that $19.5 billion wouldn't even exist. Now, here's something that I think is very important. Here's another chart from our friends at the Tax Foundation. People don't understand that American companies pay a lot of tax, over $100 billion of tax, to foreign governments. So when demagogues are saying, oh, if this company inverts, they're not going to pay tax, that's wrong. They pay a lot of tax on their overseas operations to foreign governments. And guess what? Whether you invert or whether you don't invert, whether you're an American domiciled company or a foreign domiciled domiciled company, if you earn income in the United States, you are going to be subject to the American corporate income tax. All that happens with an inversion is that foreign source income is no longer subject to double taxation by the United States government. And let's finally uh, address the runaway plant myth, because some people say, oh, this is costing jobs. Well, no, it's not because the headquarters stays in America, the operations stay in America. All that happens is that you're taking your charter out of a filing cabinet in some place like Delaware, and you're putting it in a cabinet. Of course, this all happens now electronically. There are no actual cabinets with charters, I assume, anymore. But maybe David knows these things, since he's a lawyer. Uh, not a bad guy, even though he's a lawyer. Uh, but you know, anyhow, all that happens is that the, uh, that the charter goes from a uh, electronic filing cabinet in Delaware to an electronic filing cabinet in some place like London. Uh, now, in the long run, though, as Ike was suggesting, if we have a very high corporate tax rate, guess what? There will be economic reasons for, uh, for jobs and investment to go to other countries. And that would be true whether inversions exist or whether they don't. That is a problem we have to address. The high corporate tax rate combined with worldwide taxation, that's what creates the inversion problem, which is just a small slice of the overall challenge that we face. So here are a couple of points to close with. Inversions are not tax evasion. It's not cheating at all. 
It's simply dealing with the law as it is, a very flawed law, and companies trying to do their fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, workers, and consumers, given the very bad state of play that they are faced with by the political decisions here in Washington. And again, companies, regardless of where they are based, pay tax on their U.S. source income. Uh, inversions simply deal with avoiding the extra layer of tax for U.S.-based companies. Morally speaking, an inversion is no different from me deciding I work in Washington, I could live in Maryland, D.C., or Virginia. Guess what? I chose to live in Virginia because my taxes are marginally lower. Am I wrong? Am I immoral for doing that? I suppose if I was a Maryland politician, I would say I was wrong and immoral. Uh, but I simply made a sensible decision based on my household, just like companies make sensible decisions for their shareholders, workers, and consumers. Now, the Obama administration doesn't seem to understand this at all. You may remember from the 2008 campaign, Obama was talking about bad companies that were registered in Ugland House in the Cayman Islands. And he said it must have been either the biggest building in the world or the biggest tax scam in the world because there are 12,000 of these companies, he said. Well, he was actually wrong. There are 18,000 companies, but he was within 50% of the right answer for a politician. That's pretty good. But is there something wrong about 18,000 companies being registered at this one building in the Cayman Islands? Well, I wish he had asked his vice president because his vice president used to be a senator from Delaware. Now, here's a building in Delaware. Unlike Ugland House, which I think is five stories tall, this building is two stories tall. How many companies are registered in this building in Delaware? 221,000. I actually have a company in this building, it turns out. Uh, I didn't even know it until I looked up the address on some corporate documents. Uh, but the, the key point to understand is that companies choose a place of domicile for legal registration purposes on the quality of the corporate and business law and tax law. It has nothing to do with where their headquarters are. There obviously are not 221,000 companies operating inside that building in Delaware unless it has like 150 stories underground, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Where a company operates fundamentally is going to be on the basis of economic factors, market access, and things like that. Where they choose to domicile is a function of good business, corporate, and tax law, sound and honest courts, and things like that. And unfortunately, the politicians don't seem to appreciate that. Instead, they prefer to demagogue the issue. Thank you very much. We'll be happy to answer questions until we get close to 1 o'clock. Could I just say something? I just, I just want to. Uh mention a couple things. First off, moving to a territorial system in the context of the corporate income tax is the way to go. Uh, but fundamental tax reform is where we will ultimately want to get, and all of the major uh, fundamental tax reform proposals would solve this problem. That would include the business transfer tax, the national sales tax, the hall Rabushka flat tax, or the consumed income tax uh, that's been proposed by a number of folks including in the old USA tax and also more recently by, by the Heritage Foundation. So there's more than one way to solve this, uh, but all of them move to a territorial, in many cases, border-adjusted tax system. When you do that, you have to get a couple of things right. One of them is how you treat interest uh, and make sure that the interest is allocated correctly between the United States and abroad, because you have to accurately figure out what is U.S. source income and what's foreign source income. The second thing you have to get right, and uh, Chairman Camp had a number of proposals uh, in his international discussion draft that, that did so, is the tax treatment of intangibles, so trademarks, patents, copyrights, that sort of thing, so that, again, you're accurately measuring U.S. sourcing on versus 
uh, foreign source income. If you get those things wrong, you, you, you instead of f entirely fixing the problem, you end up having a, a system where, where businesses can game uh, where, where they allocate their expenses and therefore distort uh, what's their income in terms of U.S. versus foreign source. I suppose one last thing I wanted to say was when they're talking about how businesses are unpatriotic because they're not paying more tax than the law requires, I don't believe I've seen any of these politicians send in charitable contributions to the federal government. They also pay what's due under the law and no more. So I suppose they're all unpatriotic as well. <laughs>